I ended up making a choice to launch my own practice right out of law school. And it was unheard of at the time. It was it was really something that nobody did. But I chose it as a path for me. And I knew the one thing I knew is work comes from other people. Like, yeah, I don't have a built-in office full of people funneling me work, but I can build relationships with other people. And that is where work will come from. You're listening to The Power of Two, the podcast where we unravel the success stories of entrepreneurs just like you who have transformed their business through the magic of joint venture partnerships. Being an entrepreneur can be a tough and lonely journey, but in the world of collaboration, you're never alone. Whether you're launching a new product, promoting a new offer, or if you're just looking for great ideas, there's always another business owner out there to support you. So join me, Danny Bermant, host and founder of Captain JV, as we dive deep into the journey of business owners who have harnessed the incredible potential of partnerships and turn them into a powerful catalyst for growth. Are you ready to scale your business through JV Partnerships? This is the Power of Two podcast. Today, my special guest is Heather Pierce Campbell. She is the founder of Pierce Law, PLLC, home to her legal practice. She's also the creator of the legal website Warrior an online business that provides legal education and support to information entrepreneurs, that is coaches, consultants, online educators, speakers, and authors around the US and all over the world. She's also the host of the Guts, Grit, and Great Business podcast. Hi, Heather. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, Danny. So good to see you again. I would really love to hear about uh, about your business. And in particular, I'm really keen to hear about how it all started. Uh, what were your ambitions as a child? Did you know what you were going to do in the future? You know, I, I really didn't. The funny thing is, um, you know, being an attorney now, I look back at my childhood and never once did I think about becoming an attorney or a lawyer, right? And those terms are used interchangeably. I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't have any connections to the legal field. So it is funny to look back and realize like this was never an idea that I had at any point in my youth. As a child, I don't think that I had real strong ideas about what I was going to be. I mean, I think I thought eventually I'd become a mom. I was really into volleyball for a time. So I remember having dreams like in fifth grade of being like a tall volleyball player. And that was probably because my family, you know, and my parents really enjoyed volleyball and were way into volleyball. But From a career perspective, I didn't have any real clear ideas or goals or dreams. Um, So, and that's, you know, it's interesting, even in in relation to motherhood, as I, you know, evolved into young adulthood, I never had any clear, like, preconceptions about how it would be, about when it would happen, and as I look back, because I know people who like from a young age had very clear ideas about what they wanted and where they wanted to end up. And for me, it's been quite the opposite. Life has felt a bit like an open canvas. Did you uh, do from your from your childhood, do you remember things you particularly excelled at or loved doing? Yes. I mean, I there were a lot of things that I loved doing. Um, 
you know, playing outdoors in nature was a regular for us. You know, there were six kids in my family. And so we kind of lived outside. Um, I also really loved beginning when I was quite young, actually, I tried teaching myself piano. And that was, you know, I look back on that and that was an early sign, you know, of my interest in music generally. The interesting thing is we were quite poor. And so while my parents got me into lessons for a time, it didn't last very long. And then I went for several years again without lessons. Uh, once we moved to Walla Walla, I we my parents put me in piano lessons again, and it felt hard. It felt like something I really had to work at. And I think part of it with any instrument, with any new topic, right? There's that there's that kind of that learning hump that you have to get over before you start to feel like, okay, this is doable. I'm out of the really hard phase. And this is something that I feel like I can learn. I remember that very clearly. But then piano really became a passion. I mean, I was a kid who at fifth grade, I went out and auditioned with one of the university professors at, at Walla Walla University and, and got accepted. And then I studied out there for the rest of my, uh, rest of my growing up experience. And piano really became a thing that I pursued quite, um, you know, with a lot of vigor, multiple hours a day of practice as a young kid. It sounds like you really had some of the, uh, some of the strengths of entrepreneur in terms of saying, I'm going to teach myself piano uh, and also going through that, that inevitable, inevitable struggle that all business owners go through where there's a lot of hard work you have to do till it starts becoming easier and, and enjoyable. Yes. Well, it's like anything. And uh, of course I didn't reach mastery young, right? Mastery came later, you know, and I would say, cause I can't remember what the, you know, 10,000 hours, 10 years, I can't remember what the, you know, what the phrase is around what it takes to actually achieve mastery of something, but um, you know, practicing multiple hours a day, year after year, and, you know, enrolling in any competition I could find, traveling for music, it, it was an early exercise in perseverance and dedication and learning. And, you know, I think those have always been a part of me and also something that I really enjoy. So did you did you decide, did you think about pursuing a, a career in music? I did. So when I when it was time to go off to college, I actually followed a professor who left Juilliard and went and headed up uh, the music department at Utah State University. And so I ended up there. I was the only student that he scholarshiped. Scholarships were not a thing that they gave to music students their first year. And inevitably, it's because the music program is very challenging and a lot of kids end up dropping out, right? So, but I knew I had to give myself the shot of pursuing music at that level and then deciding, you know, whether or not that was something that would continue. And so I did, I studied under Dr. Gary Amano for the first year at Utah State. And it's, you know, music, probably at any university, it can be an intensive experience. I, you know, normal class hours, like if you are spending five hours a week in class of, you know, really any topic other than music, you're getting a five credit, you know, you're getting five credits on your transcript. With music, a five hour class is three credits and you have all of this mandatory practice time, performance time, right? So it's a really big commitment. 
And I did that for my first year and just really decided it was, you know, I was a pretty well-rounded kid and that I wanted access to athletics, pursuing other things within academics, you know, extracurricular stuff as well. And music kind of took over all of that. And so at the end of that first year, I actually returned the scholarship. And at that point, the university transitioned me to a full ride academic scholarship. And so I stayed and went on to study business there. They had a great business program. And I also was very interested in languages. I'd studied both French and Spanish for years. And being in Utah, they've got great language programs there. So it was a fit for me to just stay and continue. What attracted you to studying business? Um, I'd always had an interest in business. And I think watching my dad's path, he was an entrepreneur. Um, it was just a natural fit for my brain. And it's funny because I think people think like, what? Music to business. And to me, like even taking like my business finance classes, I took a lot of economics. I ended up adding, it was initially finance, business finance was my major. And I added economics as a second major it's a lot of it's a lot of math it's a lot of you know uh, analyzing to me it's like very related to music like the way that that and i think people learn music differently you know and i think it allows you to express different parts of yourself but for some math math and music are very related right so to me it was a very natural leap whereas i think to others they look at that and go hmm that's a disconnect, but it felt like a fit for me. And business was a fun place for me to continue my learning and and also, I think, continue that interest that had been sparked by watching my dad for so many years as an entrepreneur. What was? Tell me a bit about your 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 dad's business. What did he do? So, as a when when we were young kids, and um, so for me, that meant through about second grade my dad was a veterinarian. So he'd gone to vet school at WSU. He'd launched his own practice with a business partner in a pretty rural, poor area in Idaho. And so for a handful of years, he ran a vet medicine practice, did both large and small animal work. And it ended up really becoming charity work. You know, people just couldn't pay their bills. And um, the hours were pretty grueling and he could get called at any time in the middle of the night to, you know, to go do a, a run somewhere. And so I think for him as a father of six kids and also being fairly business minded, he realized like it no longer made sense. And um, he, he and his business partner ended up actually declaring bankruptcy. And that is what caused us to move and leave, leave Idaho and end up in Walla Walla. Did that um, affect did that affect the way you look at business or what you're feeling about? Did that affect any of your ambitions? Um, I don't think it did. And I will say, you know, to my parents' credit, they kept that pretty, um, pretty contained, meaning that us kids didn't inherit, at least knowingly, inherit a lot of stress from that situation. I think there were stresses that we inherited that were related to that and other things in the way that emotionally and, you know, physically being in, in proximity with people that we inherit that stuff. But it wasn't like we were super aware of actually how hard that was for my parents to go through. I think it was really hard on my mom, 
And uh, she went from being fairly stable in her childhood and in her family economically to being quite unstable in the context of, you know, being in relationship with my dad and the experience of entrepreneurship. Um, there was quite a bit that happened, you know, regularly throughout my dad's journey of building not only that initial business, but other businesses afterwards that, you know, caused some economic instability. And so, um, but as children, we weren't always privy to those conversations and and understanding, you know, at a very deep level what was going on. But it was still a hard thing for us to leave Idaho and leave our friends and, you know, go make this new life in Walla Walla. And so, um, you know, there was definitely some of that 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 we were aware of. And then once we were in Walla Walla, my dad started a Wendy's franchise. So he actually got into kind of an active restaurant business, which was funny for us kids. Um, we ended up working in that business quite young and that, you know, became kind of a learning ground for many of us for our, you know, first real jobs, even though we did a lot of, you know, other odds and end jobs before then. Uh, but he went from that to also building a video chain, like a video store chain that he ended up selling years later to Blockbuster. And so he actually got into a variety of active businesses and alongside was really building a real estate portfolio. So it was active business and real estate that he pursued for many years. Wow. So it sounds like actually there were mixed results. Some things <laughs> didn't do so well, but other things did actually quite well. Mm -hmm, totally. And, totally. and and then so so tell me about, you know, tell me about your own business journey after, you know, after starting business, you know, what what, what happened next? Yeah. So for me, my own business journey began, I, you know, I would say, while I had uh, entrepreneurial experiences young, you know, I think that there were parts of me that were naturally entrepreneurial and seeing my dad and, you know, hearing his money lessons and talks about the importance of saving and all of this. I was very money aware at a young age, but it really wasn't until I graduated law school that I, you know, fully launched into doing my own thing. And what? that, go ahead. And well, yeah, what, what, what took you into law? So my final year of business school, I knew I wanted more education, but I, it's kind of like with the double finance and economics major, and I had extended into a summer and I had, you know, a full schedule of court of courses I didn't want more business. I wanted more schooling. I didn't want more business. And in that last year, I took both a, a writing class, an advanced writing class, and then a business law class that was required as part of my business degree. And I'm not even sure how I chose the topic. In my writing class, we had to write a final paper and I chose legal ethics. And so I had to go out into the community and meet with lawyers and research the concept of legal ethics and write a paper about it. And at the same time, I was taking this business law course. There was just enough of a spark between those two things. And through kind of a pivotal conversation with my mom that I realized like law could be a fit for me. And, you know, part of it was that in business law, everybody else was like tuning out and like just trying to kind of get through it. And I was like front row Joe, you know, enjoying it, like really getting into the reading. And so there were a few signs like that, that it was a fit, but it was also a leap of faith, you know, just making a decision and going for it and um, and having it work out. 
And um, so you set up your own practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I graduated law school, it was a super weird time. 9-11 had happened, right? I graduated in 2002. 9-11 had happened. Was that 2000 or 2001? <laughs> My 2001. brain's a little foggy. 2001. A lot happened in that time frame because my mom had also been diagnosed with uh, terminal brain cancer and then passed away the start of my second year of law school. Um, and then 9-11 happened and it was just a very weird economic time. My second summer, I'd actually spent abroad working for the British government in their audit commission, which again was a combination of finance and legal. So it was like blending both of my, you know, my study areas and it was a great fit and I loved it, but it didn't give me any inroads into, you know, um, opportunities or jobs post-graduation. And my third year, I also took a very small class called Issues in Solo Practice. There were like eight of us maybe in that class. And we learned from a couple of local practitioners about what solo practice was like. And I just remember really thinking, like looking around at how all of my peers had been funneled down, came in with big ideas about what they wanted to do in law. And then very quickly, you get funneled down into, you know, uh, big law, like going to work for a, a large or medium-sized law firm, uh, you know, government, or, um, or you know, maybe a, a smaller law firm. And it was so, it just felt so narrow to me. It was not a fit. And I, I did plenty of interviewing. I participated in all the regular processes. And I, I remember walking through some of the big firms because I had interviews with some of the best firms in town thinking, this is not a fit for me. Like, like closed door offices, not a like a positive interactive feeling. It just, it was not how I wanted to practice. And so I ended up making a choice to launch my own practice right out of law school. And it was unheard of at the time. It was, it was really something that nobody did, but I chose it as a path for me. And I knew the one thing I knew is work comes from other people. Like, yeah, I don't have a built-in office full of people funneling me work, but I can build relationships with other people. And that is where work will come from. There's, it sounds like uh, you, it sounds like you have a particular outlook that made it quite difficult for you to fit in, in, a, in a like conventional law firm. Yeah, I think so. I Having watched my mom die young really shifted my perspective around what I was willing to do with my time and my hours. And I became very unwilling to follow others, other people's paths of like what you should do to kind of like earn your way, get the experience that you need. And then if you're lucky, get handed a position in international law or, you know, doing something interesting in your career. And until then, you just got to do what people tell you to do and take whatever work you, you know, you can get within the firm. And that, that was not appealing to me. It sounds like your, your mom had really affected your, she really affected your outlook on life. Uh, and so, so tell me a bit about your mom. Oh, completely. So my mom was definitely the glue in our family. Like a lot of moms are, she, you know, she was, um, a peacemaker. She had a this very unique way of making everybody in her presence feel like the most special person in her life. 
And she, um, you know, she was just pretty magical. People that knew her, adored her, loved her. You know, she was the like the favored sibling in her own family by all her other siblings. And so she was a pretty fabulous person and mom. And um, it was just such a shock to everybody, you know, that her health took such a dramatic turn. And, you know, and so young, you know, I'm older than my mom was. Yeah, it's, final it's, days it, right now. Yeah, it's it's very uh, it's very difficult. It's it's when you when you when you get to that point where you realize that you're older than your parents were when they passed on, and yeah. I think that, that when your mother was ill, it was a, a very difficult time as well. It was right in the middle of your studies. Yeah, she got her diagnosis in um, it was Thanksgiving Day, my first year of law school, and law school started in September, so it was a couple months into school, and. Um, it was, again, a pretty astounding thing. She'd passed a physical and flying colors just two days before. I'd come home early because I knew something was wrong. And um, she couldn't put it into words. I mean, when you have a tumor the size of a golf ball growing right next to your speech center, like it became so clear why she could not communicate on the phone months leading up to that. You know, she would be kind of at a loss of words and then she would just say, here, talk to your dad. And that was like, so weird. Cause the, in our family, that's not how it went. Like you called home and you talked to mom, dad was not really a phone talker. <laughs> so, you know, that was a big sign to me that something was wrong and she couldn't communicate what it was. Obviously she didn't know. Right. So, um, so yeah, we learned in a hurry and took life, took a dramatic turn in a hurry on that Thanksgiving day. And you know, really has never been the same since. Yeah, so so basically, she you realized something was wrong. You arrived just for Thanksgiving, and she was taken ill. Yeah, she had exactly a grand mal seizure. Home. Yeah, she had a grand mal seizure right before we were going to have Thanksgiving dinner, and so we ended up taking her obviously to the local ER, and they did a brain scan and announced that you know she had glioblastoma. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, what happened? Did you have to come back? Did you have to stay home from college or what, <laughs> what? how did things pan out? Yeah, we really considered that. All of us kids actually, you know, went through quite some time where we considered dropping out of our respective levels of schooling. Um, obviously not the kids at home that still lived at home. And that included um, uh, my two youngest siblings, Drew and Haley. But for all of us, either in undergrad or graduate school, um, you know, we really thought like maybe we just need to take the year and be with mom. But my parents wouldn't hear of it. They did not want us, you know, putting our lives on hold for this. And so to me, my choice then became like, OK, well, how do I do law school in a limited amount of time so that I can still spend time with mom before she goes? Because we knew and we were very clear you know, thankfully the surgeon who was, you, you know, we ended up um, Thursday, it was Thanksgiving. We learned of her diagnosis. And by Saturday, thanks to my uncle, who was really plugged into the medical community, he's an ENT doctor and um, had a really good education and was highly, highly connected with the medical network in Utah and actually some of the best uh, brain surgeons in the world are in Utah. And so we got my mom 
uh, down for surgery Saturday. We drove all day down to Utah and then she went in for surgery on Sunday morning. And we knew that there was, um, I think it was, I uh, can't remember, 30 to 50% chance that she would not survive the surgery. And then a really significant chance that if she did survive the surgery, um, she wouldn't be able to speak. So, of course, we felt grateful for, I mean, the first step is her surviving the surgery, which she did, obviously. And then um, she the room was full of people when she woke up. I will never forget this moment because all of us kids, all of her siblings, probably some other extended family had all squeezed into this tiny room that she was in. And she wakes up and looks at her brother and says, John, it's hot in here. Open the window. <laughs> that felt like a miracle, right? So that really felt like a, a tiny miracle. She did continue to have um, some speech difficulties, but she also had real moments of clarity where she could speak. Um, but, you know, we got uh, 10 more months with her and uh, the surgeon had said, don't be fooled. Like she will not survive this. And for some people, it's six months, you know, I think average is 10 months. And then some outliers had survived like up to two years following that kind of surgery. So for my first year of law school, I did law school during Monday through Wednesday. And then I would travel home Wednesday evening. And that was about a four or four and a half hour drive across the state. And then I would be home with my mom and dad Thursday and, and my youngest siblings um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then part of Sunday. And then I would return to Seattle and drive back. So that's how my school year yet went. And I, I did not open a book when I was home. I was clear that this is time to be home and spend with family and whatever I could get done in the Monday through Wednesday is what I could get done. And so your parents really did have in their own <laughs> different ways, have a very strong impact on you. Mm-hmm, totally. So your, your father very much teaching about you know, entrepreneurship and your mother mm-hmm. clearly had a, a love of life, which absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It was a great combo. So how has that uh, kind of affected you moving, you know, setting up your firm and, and actually mm-hmm. establishing everything? Yeah. Well, for me, you know, it was a balance of taking my mom's perspective, right. And understanding like life is short, I want to do what I want to do and do work that I love and that I choose to do. And then, you know, in combination with, I would say my dad's teaching us risk taking, right? The ability to take some risks. And so for me, it it was a risk. I didn't know how to build a firm or a business or, you know, it was just knowing I could do certain things and testing and trying out those things. So like for the first many months, even before I learned, because you you sit for the bar and then you wait. I don't know. I think it's July, like June or July that the bar exam is. You wait until November for the results. So there's quite a bit of time in between that. And I remember being like, I'm not waiting for results. I need to be building a pipeline now. And so I put all of my contacts into an Excel spreadsheet. And I told myself, you know, Every day of the week, I think maybe some weeks I gave myself Friday off, but at least Monday through Thursday, I needed to have a face-to-face meeting with somebody in the legal community to build my network, build, you know, just the amount of people that I knew and that knew me 
and have real conversations with them about their work. Because I knew like, even in a terrible economy, it was the worst economy in 30 years to be graduating law school. You know, I had zero connection to the legal field. So I didn't have built in connections. And I would literally read the newspapers. If there was a name of somebody who handled the case, boom, they went into my spreadsheet and I reached out to them. You know, I I gathered uh, people's names wherever I could get them. And I would I would do research on them. I would do research on their firm. I'd do research on their experience and any published cases. So that way, you know, when we met, I felt like I could give them the best of me and I would receive, you know, genuine, a genuine response. And I was also now, really clear about why I wanted to meet. That's the other thing is I never hid the ball. And how did you, how did you find it reaching out to people? Were people, uh, res- people being responsive? Were they cooperative? I found this is the fascinating thing about attorneys is, you know, I think so many people hear negative press or they've had some negative experience with our legal system, which then translates to their impression of attorneys or people in the legal field. And I found everyone to be generous and uh, completely willing to give me their time and their insights. Like I was just overwhelmed with the amount of openness and generosity that I received. That's really interesting. And how are you approaching these people? Was it advice or you were looking for clients? Uh, No, I would email them usually. Sometimes I would call them if I could, you know, come up with a phone number and just say, hey, you know, my name is Heather Pierce and I'm a new law graduate and I'm building my own practice and I'm also building my network. And I would be really interested in talking with you about your experience, your practice, you know, and, and having a coffee or having a lunch. They were always happy to do that, which which continued to surprise me. Right. And and, you know, at the end, my goal was that, you know, I knew them better, knew where they fit in the legal field and the legal community, and that they also were aware of the type of work that I was looking for, because I knew all these folks were probably turning down cases or sending some some work to somebody else that they didn't want to handle or wasn't in their area. And I needed to make myself available to receive that kind of work and those referrals. And you got that work, presumably. <laughs> it's it's listening to you just reminds me how again and again, uh, in the world of like business development, people tend to look for the most complicated way to get clients. They they, they you know they they reach out to they look at advertising, they look at SEO, they look at social media campaigns. The one thing they don't do is talk to people. Yes. Uh, and I wonder why I wonder why there is I wonder why there is that fear of just talking to people, which which you demonstrate is by far the easiest thing to do. Oh, my gosh. It, and the thing that's so fascinating about that is it was like the simplest strategy that I could come up with that gave me a repeatable process. Right. It literally looked like mm-hmm. finding a name putting it in my spreadsheet, finding their contact information, spending maybe a half hour or an hour prior to our meeting, researching their work, their firm, so I could ask meaningful questions. And that's it. And then having a genuine conversation with them when they agreed to show up for coffee or lunch. And by the way, most of the time, almost 100% of the time, they treated me. (laughs) Yeah, which I, you know, again, found to be like so generous. And it is not something that I asked for, but it was just like the unwritten rule in the legal field, you know, and they were also willing to mentor me in their own small ways. Mm -hmm. 
I, I think what you say also, it's it's something that I see with joint venture partnerships that people tend to um, tend to be reluctant to go and talk. talk they, they, you know, they're, they're the easiest way to to, to clients in, in the world of joint ventures is, is exactly what you described. It's it's just talking to people who are in the space that you want to be in, asking them about what they do, what you know, what what sort of work they handle, and maybe who they can introduce you to. And and yes. people are, in my experience, always want to help. It's- Absolutely. It's and it, I think it continues to surprise me how much that holds true because you're right. People try all these other strategies. And even when I graduated, all my peers, you can probably guess what they were doing, right? They were sending out resumes, even the ones that had had jobs and then had those jobs reneged because of the economy, sending out resumes sending out, you know, email inquiries, like it was none of the face-to-face stuff. And this is pre-Zoom, right? But I was clear, you get face-to-face with somebody where they see you, you communicate with them, they know who you are, and you show up as a real genuine person. Like they almost can't help but like you, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it also took me back to the days when I was in junior high, about to transition to high school, my dad gave me the book, how to win friends and influence people. I was a super shy kid. I was like head down, heavy backpack full of books, you know, like very intimidated to even, I remember that first year of high school because this was the year that ninth grade went from being junior high to actually being part of the high school, feeling so intimidated, like seeing all my brother's friends and not really being able to like, be fully confident, you know, and hold my head up. And I think my dad sensed that that book would really be a game changer for me. And it was, it changed the trajectory of my life for sure. I think there's something else, there's something else to to see there, which is that people tend to think, well, I'm, I'm a shy person or I'm an introvert. I can't do this. I can't stop going talking to people. But, but again, a lot of the people I know who excel at joint ventures, they're not necessarily extroverts at all. Uh, No, that's right. But they're very good at building relationships with people nonetheless. That's that's right. And at the end of the day, I remember in high school learning a really valuable experience about who am I to put my fears, right? Because it really was a fear of like, I don't know, exposing myself or my flaws or whatever it was, right? Whatever it is that kind of keeps you inside of yourself. And I agree, some people are just naturally introverted where it's not even necessarily about a fear. It's just how they're wired. Um, But I remember thinking, who am I to put like my fears or my resistance or hesitation around this in front of other people, in front of like a head, like a head in line of helping or serving or connecting with other people. And it was at that point where I just decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. Right, right. So if, exactly, and and I, I think that's the, the even if your mindset says you know I'm I'm you know I find it quite tiring meeting with people because people introverts mm-hmm. tend to find it quite exhausting meeting people. Um, if you understand what's going through your mind, you realize even you know even though I'm shy, uh, you know asking people for help is not it's not actually that difficult. No, no, and it's and it's really good practice to be able to do that. And I, it, you know, it was a very humbling experience. Not that I 
necessarily felt that overly challenging to do because I realized I am a beginner. I don't know anything about the mm. law other than how to learn it and analyze it. Yeah. Right. Cause that's, that's what you're taught in law school. You're not taught how to run a legal practice. You're not taught how to run a business. You're not, you're not even mm. really taught how to practice law. You are taught how to analyze things, mm. how to write well and write succinctly and clearly how to research. That's it. Full stop. So I was clear coming out. Like, I don't know anything and I, I need to be able to rely on people. And I also remember realizing Rather than wasting 20 hours researching this particular topic where I'm going to literally have to research every, you know, facet and corner of it, how about I call an expert that already knows the answer and can at least point me in the direction of the main guideposts? Exactly. Like, like that was so obvious to me as a young person. Like, why would I... Why would I do all of this unnecessary research if I could talk to somebody who's like, oh, hey, go look at this, this, and this, and you're going to have a really good understanding of this topic. And so that is also something that I started doing very early is if I was faced with a new issue on a case that I took on, I didn't waste any time futzing around trying to figure it all out myself. I went to experts and said, hey, can you help me with this? Or do you have past briefing I could look at? Or would you be willing to talk to me for 10 minutes about this and give me your ideas? Right. I, I think success in business, it's, it's about valuing your own time. You know, and, and again, it's it's building a network of, of, of people you can call on and ask for help is a lot less time consuming than having to research all yourself yes. or create a really complex marketing campaign to get in front of those people oh it's totally true and it's it's interesting because a few years into my career and i i continued in this manner by the way of taking on my own cases and then there would be times where i would connect with a firm and they'd bring me on to some of their big projects where they needed contract support and so i got a really excellent balance of learning how to manage my own clients, handling my own cases, and getting really extraordinary mentoring from some of some some boutique as well as some large law firms in town that I worked with on various projects. And I don't know how many years into my career I began just, I don't know how it happened, kind of organically, people would send new law graduates to me, like go talk to Heather that, you know, for, especially for law graduates that didn't have a clear career path. And I ended up doing a lot of mentoring of people, you know, five and 10 years behind me on how to basically start their own career, especially in, in lieu of, because there were times, you know, you talk about like the 2008 economic downturn, right? This would have been six years after I graduated and began practicing. Like there've been numerous times where we've had some downturns since then. And, so there have been folks that have graduated that have no prospects, you know, put all this time and energy into a law degree and then have had to really figure it out on their own. So I ended up doing a fair amount of mentoring of those of those people, which I always enjoyed. And I always was willing to have those conversations. But what surprised me is eventually I began to have people that were top level at the, some of the firms that I was working for on a contract basis coming to me and asking me, how are you how are you getting your work how are you doing this and it was because they wanted to leave the firm life and they weren't clear on how i had built 
my own practice and had a very full schedule working with a variety of projects, a variety of people and my own clients. And so that was eye-opening to me that like, you know what, they're not even doing the level of like face-to-face interaction that I'm doing with people in the community. It's interesting. So many people go to law, as you said, they're, they're very, um, they're very, very well versed in the actual process of law, but the business development. It's not taught. At least it it wasn't when I was in school. I'd be very curious if that's shifting now in some of the law schools. It was absolutely not taught how to run a practice, how to launch a practice, how to be a rainmaker at a practice. Hmm. That's not taught. No, no. So so tell me a bit about how your practice developed, uh, you know, after stars, because we're going, you've been in, you've been in practice for quite a few years now. Yeah, I have. So gosh, what am I? 21 years, right? Over 21 years. Um, and so for me, initially, like I said, I I built up a book of business just through referrals. And I also did a funny thing. I remember this sitting in my little um, studio apartment, right? This was basically in the days of emails and physical letters, um, <laughs> which is all I did initially to announce to people, you know, I'm, I've graduated, I'm, you know, either waiting for the bar exam results, or, you know, once that happened, licensed. And I said, I'm available for projects. And so I started getting this trickle. And I sent that out, by the way, to basically like anybody that I knew, family, friends, anybody that was in my Rolodex, and I say that because I actually had a Rolodex. <laughs> I put them on an email or I wrote a letter and I printed all my own terrible little business cards and sent them off to people, right? Made my own letterhead. And that's how I announced to the world that I was in business. And the other thing that I did is I tracked everybody in my Excel spreadsheet where I was like, I need to touch base with them at least once a month, right? So this is pre-Infusionsoft, pre-all that stuff. (laughs) But it was my own little version of understanding, like, I need to remain in mind for these people to be able to refer me or send me work. And so I would put myself on a schedule of reaching out to everybody that I knew, whether it was through a letter or an email, once a month until I had enough work that I didn't need to, you know, continue at that level. So, you know, it was some simple things that looking at now, right, in the age of modern internet businesses, it's like, well, duh. But then it was an unusual thing to do. Just looking back at your journey, what what would be your, what would be your, your lesson to, you know, would be, would be lawyers who want to set up a practice? I mean, for one, like, just be totally willing and unafraid to ask for help because you will get it. And if you're a genuine person who treats other people with respect and you show a genuine interest in them, like they they almost cannot help themselves, but but help you, right? And so that was such a, a welcome lesson for me repeatedly, how willing people are to help. Um, And then the other thing is really being open to change. I never knew where my career was going to go. The early days were heavy in litigation, lots of business, lots of real estate. And, you know, midway through my career at about the 10 year mark, I really decided I wanted to do something differently uh, because I wanted to create a more efficient, more effective model within law, which is a slow moving, very traditional industry. 
And so that's where I launched the concept for the Legal Website Warrior, which is now one of my two businesses. And it's much more, you know, digital online information education based business, exactly like the clients that I support and serve. Um, I could not have predicted that that's where I was going to go. But I think remaining open to evolving and also evolving creatively just can take you really interesting places. And, you know, and so I think really for me, it's about reminding people to remain open and not to be stuck doing certain things, certain ways, either because of the industry that you're in or the profession that you chose, like there's endless opportunities for creativity. And just to uh, just to uh, add to what you said, uh, so many of the people I've interviewed about their entrepreneurial journey, they never plan to be entrepreneurs in the first place. No. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's so often because the, for whatever reason, they were thrown into that situation. Totally. Maybe they didn't have a choice. Maybe like it was the only choice. Right. Maybe it was just that they spotted a problem that they really wanted to solve. And the only choice is to become an entrepreneur to solve that. Right. So. It's true. And I think that's the joy of entrepreneurship is how surprising it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Heather, mm. thank you so much for, for being on the show. It's been a fascinating discussion. Oh, thank you, Danny. It's always so great to connect with you. I really appreciate you hosting this and inviting me on. So uh, I'm Danny Bermant, founder of CaptainJV.co. And I look forward to see you on the next episode of The Power of Two. For more information about us, go to www.captainjv.co.